name of the deceased and relation, Hendrik Luther. Grandfather. And our father on every step. When you reach the top of the stairs, Hendrik will be released from purgatory and enter the gates of heaven. Name of the deceased and relation, Wolfram Escher. And our father on every step. When you reach the top of the stairs, Wolfram will be released from purgatory and enter the gates of heaven. Paternostic, he is a cadet, certificate, and not a that been in written to fear volunteers to a secret Good morning. Alrighty, now we're talking. We are in this uh, series at the moment that we started a few weeks ago called Reformation because 500 years ago, about three Tuesdays back, was the 500th anniversary of a monk called Martin Luther nailing up some statements on his local church door, which was the bulletin board for the community, which most people look at and say was the beginning of what we call the Protestant Reformation. And so to celebrate that, we have been looking at this, uh, this whole deal and the importance of the Protestant Reformation, and most importantly, the whole idea of the rediscovery of the gospel. And so we kicked this off on the Sunday right before that anniversary, right before Halloween, by talking about the story of Martin Luther. And just a reminder, if, if you weren't here, and just so you're with us all, when we're talking about Martin Luther, we don't mean this guy, all right? This is an American uh, civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, good guy, uh, but not who we're talking about. So we're talking about this guy, Martin Luther, who this guy was named after. So not this guy, this guy. All right? We clear? So Martin Luther was a monk who lived 500 years ago in Germany, and he is the one that most historians look at and say was the one who kind of kicked off the Protestant Reformation. He was not the only reformer. There were a number of church leaders um, who all came out of the Roman Catholic Church in different parts of Europe, but Luther was the, really the one that kind of primed it all and, and lit the flame that kicked it all off. And so I told his story a few weeks ago, and then what we're doing in the, in the next kind of five weeks, and we're up to week three of these, is we're looking at the, the core ideas that they really wrestled with 
and broke out with, what we call the five solas, the five key foundational stones of virtually every Protestant denomination and movement, we all come back to these core truths about the gospel. And these things had been lost along the way, believed by some, but lost by the majority until the reformers came along and the Protestant Reformation captured these again. So the last couple of Sundays, we've looked at sola scriptura, the idea that our foundation for our faith is scripture alone. And we've looked at our sola Christus, that the center of our faith is Jesus Christ and him alone. So today now we come to this third one, sola gratia, the idea that we are saved by God's grace and by God's grace alone with nothing else. So if you've got a Bible, I would love you to come with me to really the best known passage in the whole Bible about grace. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you've got a paper Bible, if you've got your phone with the app on it, if you've got an iPod, whatever, iPad, whatever you want to use, I'd love you to come with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he'd spent about three years in, in a place called Ephesus, which is now in modern Turkey. And in this passage at the beginning, the first half of Ephesians 2, he does an awesome job of really unpacking what this message of good news by God's grace is all about. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So Ephesians 2, and I want to just read the first three verses first. What I want to do this morning is I want to walk through this passage and, and just help us understand it again, even if we're quite familiar with these words. I want us to come back with fresh eyes to God's word today. And then I want to, having looked at the passage, I then want to look at the way that the reformers, and especially Luther, then unpacked and understood this idea of grace and how it impacts us today. So we're going to jump in here. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just read the first three verses first. Ephesians 2 verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's Satan, the devil. Verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So Paul is going to unpack four ideas in these first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 about the gospel, the good news of grace. And if you're going to understand the good news for Paul, you have to understand the bad news first. And the bad news is that we need grace. We desperately need grace. Why? Because he said in verse 1, we are dead in our sins. In other words, we are so lost from God because of our rebellion against him and our sin against him that we are dead. We're not struggling, we're not sick, we're not just needing a little bit of help, we're dead. That's the idea, right? So, uh, Phil Moore, a British pastor, has described it this way, we are not drowning people who need to be thrown a life belt, we're not sick people who just need some rehabilitation, we're not sleepy people who needed to be woken up, we were dead. So we didn't need medicine, we needed a miracle. We needed God to jump into our lives and do a miracle in us to bring us back from the dead. And that's a very important thing to understand because your understanding of grace is going to be utterly dependent on your understanding of sin. If sin is just a, a little bit of a problem, a minor inconvenience, something that gets in the way every now and then, then grace isn't going to be that amazing. But if sin is such a problem that you are basically a spiritual corpse before God and you can't do a thing about it, then suddenly his grace becomes something incredibly important 
and, and wonderful and beautiful. The big idea and where we're going today is this. Grace is not a helping hand with which we then cooperate. Grace isn't just simply God giving us a hand because we only measure up a certain percentage of what we need, so God kind of gives us a hand with the rest. Grace is a status of undeserved love that we will never earn. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit more later on once we're through this passage. But it's very important to understand grace is not just God helping us out a bit. Grace is about God loving us and saving us when we couldn't earn it, didn't deserve it, and couldn't do anything for ourselves and still can't. And when you understand that, it's incredibly important. And that all rests on this idea that we desperately need grace, that we are dead because of our sin. In the movie, uh, The Princess Bride, remember that movie? The, uh, the hero, Wesley, who uh, has become the Dread Pirate Roberts uh, midway through the movie, um, ends up getting captured by the forces of, of the evil prince, Humperdinck. And he is tortured in the, in the uh, cellars of the castle, and he ends up being dead, and his friends take him to this geezer towards the end of the movie, if I can get the slide to work. Miracle Max. But the great news is, when they get him to Miracle Max, Miracle Max makes a stunning announcement. Do you remember it? He's not dead. He's just mostly dead. <laughs> and because he's mostly dead, but not fully dead, then he's able to revive him, and, and Wesley saves the day and wins the girl, and it's an awesome movie. Paul here says, you were not mostly dead. You were dead. You followed the ways of this world, the corrupted society around us. You followed the ways of the devil. You followed your own sinful nature. The world, the flesh, and the devil all together means you were dead. I was dead. Not mostly dead, not somewhat dead, not half dead, not 38% dead, dead. Until God steps in in his grace. In fact, Paul will wrap that, if you notice, at the very end of verse 3, the final sentence. It means because we were dead in our sin, we were like the rest by nature, not just because of what we do, but who we are, deserving of his wrath. It's a serious situation that we find ourselves in. And we will not comprehend the beauty and wonder of God's grace until we come face to face with our own sin and depravity and evil. Paul would summarize it this way in another one of his letters to the Romans. There's no one righteous, not even one person in this world. No one who stands perfect before God. There's no one who understands him. There's no one who seeks after God. All of us have turned away. All of us have become worthless spiritually before him. There is no one who does good, not even one. Sin is a serious, serious problem. And that's what makes grace so amazing and so beautiful. So that is our need before God. Right, then Paul is going to describe what God has done. Look at verses 4 to 7. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but, it's one of the best buts in the world, but you were dead, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive. He resurrected us. He brought us back from the dead. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were, here it is again, dead in our transgressions. 
It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So the bad news is that we need grace because we're dead in our sin. The good news is that we receive grace in Christ alone. And this is where this doctrine of sola gratia, by grace alone, links with the doctrine last week of sola Christus, uh, by Christ alone, or in Christ alone. What I want you to notice is the particular phrasing Paul does here. How the way we are made alive, the way that grace works in our lives, is with Christ or in Christ. You notice that? It happens a few times. So verse 5 He made us alive with Christ. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ. Verse 6 again, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms in order that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us, verse 7, in Christ. So the way that grace comes to sinful human beings who are dead in their sin is in Christ. In other words, we are united to Jesus in relationship. And it's because of that relationship with him that what the the reformers called union with Christ. That's what makes us righteous and acceptable to God and alive before him instead of being dead in our sins. So John Calvin, who was another reformer, his name might be familiar to you. He was in Switzerland, not Germany, and he came a generation after Luther. He was a kid when Luther was doing his stuff. But Luther was very impactful on Calvin. Calvin wrote this, as soon as you become engrafted into Christ, united with Christ by faith, You were made a son of God and an heir of heaven, a partaker in righteousness, a possessor of life, and you obtain not the opportunity to gain merit, but you obtain all of the merits of Christ, for they are communicated to you. In other words, you become linked with Jesus by faith so that when the Father looks at you, he sees the beauty and perfection of his son. My friend Tim Collins is a uh, pastor at Auckland Bible Church, which is the church that, that planted us. And uh, Tim tells a story of many years ago when he was uh, working for Coca-Cola as their sports marketing manager. And he had a tough job. He had to do things like um, look after the All Blacks because Coke sponsored the All Blacks. So for a guy who enjoys rugby like Tim, he would get to travel with the All Blacks to Australia and he would take the winners of the the Coca-Cola competition to go tour with the All Blacks. So Tim would look after them and would liaise with the All Blacks and take these the, the, the competition winners to the trainings and to the game and all this kind of thing. So he got to know them very well. He also got to take them to schools and that kind of thing for special events. And so he'd turn up at a primary school assembly in a hall like this, and, and he'd have Jonah Lomu with him and Sean Fitzpatrick and some of those guys. That was the era. This was his job. And he describes the time he turned up at one primary school with five All Blacks. And they, uh, they talked to the assembly. Tim talked first and introduced the All Blacks, and then they all talked. And then the kids lined up for autographs. And um, a line formed in front of Tim. And, and Tim's taller than me, and, you know, well, he's not actually that rugged. He doesn't look like an all-black at all. But anyway, the kids didn't know, and they line up in front of Tim. And Tim looks down at the, at the little boy right in front of him, you know, with his poster and a pen ready for Tim to sign his autograph. And Tim, Tim says, no, no, I'm not an all-black. You want to go see those guys? And, and the little boy started crying thinking that this all-black in front of him was refusing his autograph. 
And so Tim was just like, okay, give me your thing. And he signs it and gives it to him. And, like, and Jonah Lomu's over there and Sean Fitzpatrick's over there. And they're watching Tim signing autographs <laughs> and laughing. And Tim says, you know, imagine now in 30 years, some kid, well, who's not a kid anymore, you know, now he's 45. And he pulls out this old poster he got from primary school of the All Blacks. And there's Sean, there's Jonah, Tim Collins. Don't, don't remember him. Tim wasn't an all-black, but Tim was some, someone by association with the all-blacks. It's kind of how it works through faith. But it's something even richer than that. Because if you've trusted in Jesus, you're engrafted into Christ. You're so united with Christ that it's not simply that God has made a mistake. It's not like God is a kid collecting an autograph because it's a mistaken identity. You know, identity. It's that you are so united with Christ, you're so associated with him, that you don't just get to sign autographs. You actually get to take the field in the uniform and play the game. You make the All Blacks. Not because you're a good rugby player. You could be as weedy as me and still make the All Blacks by association. That's the way this works. So we receive grace by being united to Jesus in Christ, with Christ. We receive a grace to have made a team we never thought we would make simply because we are now related to our big brother, Jesus, by faith. That's how we receive this incredible grace. Third point Paul makes then is in verses 8 and 9, probably the verses that you may know even the best if you know this passage at all. Verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul's already explained we need grace because we're dead in our sin. We receive grace by being in union with Jesus, and then we rest in grace. We rest in grace because it's not by our works. It's by his grace alone. Most people don't get this about grace. But it's very important to understand grace and works are mutually exclusive. You can't have them both. By very definition, grace is unearned favor and love. That means you don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You couldn't do anything to get it. That's how grace works. So as soon as you try and bring works in, it's not grace anymore. It's exactly what Paul will say again in his letter to the Romans. If it's by grace, then it can't be based on works. If it was based on works, grace would no longer be grace. They're mutually exclusive. And that's what Paul is saying here in verses 8 and 9. If you have been saved by faith in Jesus, you are saved totally and utterly by grace. It's not your works. It's not what you've done. It's not what God looked into the future and saw that you might do. It's totally a gift of his grace. It has nothing to do with you deserving it or earning it or doing anything to justify it. It's a gift totally by grace that cannot be earned. Now, that sounds amazing, but there's a flip side to how amazing that is. You only get grace 
if you're willing to admit you are a complete failure. You only get grace if you're willing to admit you need a gift because you can't earn it on your own. And for many people, that's a hard thing to come to. That's a hard thing to admit, that I need grace, that I can't do it. You know, many people write Christianity off because, you know, people just need a crutch. Exactly. Grace is for people who recognize they need a crutch because they are broken, they are dead, and there's nothing they can do about it. Many of us, most if not all here, have accepted and trusted in Jesus by faith. You have a relationship with Jesus and you understand this is how it started. It wasn't based on what I do, it wasn't on my works, it was totally a gift of God. What we don't often comprehend is that that is still true today. Every day of our Christian lives, our relationship with God is totally by grace. So earlier in Romans, Paul wrote these words. Therefore, because we've been justified through faith, which we're going to look at and explain next week in this series, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith, look at these words, into this grace in which we now stand. In other words, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you placed your faith in him at some point last week or 10 years ago or half a, decade, half a century ago, doesn't matter, you, you were saved, you came into this relationship totally by grace. And today you stand in that relationship totally by grace. It isn't based on what you do. It's not based on what your merits are. It doesn't, isn't based on whether you've had a good week or not with God. You stand in grace today, so do I. It's why my favorite uh, author on this topic, Jerry Bridges, writes these words, we're brought into God's kingdom totally by grace. We are sanctified or made holy by his grace. We receive blessings by grace. We're motivated to obey him by grace. We're called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. One day we will glorify it and go to heaven by grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of grace. That's what Paul is saying. We desperately need grace, unearned favor and love, because we're dead in our sins. We receive that grace by being related to Jesus. And we rest in that grace every day in our walk with God, rather than our own works. So where do good works come in then? Does that mean we can do whatever we like? Does that mean it doesn't matter what we do? We don't have to worry about obeying God or not? No, good works is part of it, but it's not part of how we earn anything with God. Works comes out the other end. Look at verse 10, how Paul kind of wraps this little passage up. Verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork, Created in Christ Jesus, there it is again, that's that relationship, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Two things we have to understand out of this verse if we're to understand what Paul is saying. First of all, who we now are in Jesus. Notice that the NIV says we are God's handiwork. I like, I like the English word they've used there. The word that in the NIV is handiwork, it might be different if you've got a different translation is, is the Greek word poema, from which we get our word poem. You were God's poem. 
You and I are God's masterpiece, in other words. We are God's work of art that he has created in Christ. So he has made something that he looks at and says, that is incredible. And that's how he looks at you if you're in Christ. You may look at yourself in the mirror when you get up in the morning and think, oh, my stars. But God looks at you in Christ and says, oh, my stars. You're a work of art. In fact, the only other time that word gets used in the entire New Testament is in Romans chapter 1, where Paul said, since the creation of the very world, God's invisible qualities, his power and his divine nature and who he is, has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, which is poema. Ever since the world began, people can look at God's handiwork in creation and see the wonder of God. It's the same word that Paul uses here. In Christ, by grace. You've come to him by faith. You're his handiwork. You are the equivalent for God of the most beautiful, picturesque waterfall or mountain or galaxies, whatever it is you think of the handiwork of God, that is now you if you are in Christ. If you're a recipient of his grace, you're a masterpiece of God. And you're a masterpiece that has been created, notice at the end of verse 10, to do good works. It's not that we don't worry about doing good. It's just that we don't have to do good to get in with God because we're already in. And so now we do good as a response to his grace, not in any attempt to try and earn it. It's a, it's a thank you rather than a please. So one pastor put it this way, Paul states that works are not the root of our salvation. They're the fruit of salvation. The reformers, he says, used to say it's by faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies will never be alone. We're not saved by faith plus works, but by a faith that will end up resulting in works because we're a masterpiece. We're a new creation. That's what grace does in each of us. And so that's now the response we make to God's amazing grace in our lives. That's the way that Paul packages up and helps us understand this beautiful concept of grace. We need grace because we're dead in our sins. We receive his grace, unearned favor and love, by being related and associated and united with Jesus. We then rest in that grace, understanding we don't contribute to it, we don't deserve it, we can't earn it. Works is not part of this. We simply respond to his grace because we are now new creatures, new masterpieces. That's the biblical teaching on the grace of God. So having said all that, how do we understand this doctrine? And how did the reformers understand it? And why had the church, by the time they came along 500 years ago, kind of got off track with this? Where it had gone wrong? And what was it about this biblical teaching that Luther and Calvin and the other reformers said, wait a minute, no, this is the good news. This is what grace is about. Let me just unpack that for a few minutes. It's really important to understand as we, um, as we jump into this. The Roman Catholic Church believes strongly in salvation by grace. So sometimes it's represented that, that they don't, and that isn't correct. They totally believe in the grace of God. So this is again quoted before, the 1995 Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is their doctrinal statement. Our justification, which we'll describe that word next week, 
Our justification comes from the grace of God. It is God's favor to us. The free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God, adopted sons and daughters, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. It's a great statement. So what the Catholic Church believes is that God, because we are dead in our sin, Ephesians 2, God has to take the initiative and reach out to us and give us his grace to make us alive in Christ. So everyone's in agreement. So this is exactly what's happened already in these other two doctrines. We've looked at Scripture alone, Christ alone. It's not that the Catholic Church in Luther's day or today deny those doctrines. The problem is they add to them. So when you come to Scripture, the Catholic Church absolutely agrees that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Absolutely. But you also need the traditions of the church and the Pope and the bishops teaching. The Catholic Church absolutely believes that Jesus is our Savior through his perfect life and sacrificial death and bodily resurrection from the dead and his present ministry for us at the hand of the right hand of the Father. Absolutely believes that. But you also need the sacraments and you also need Mary to intercede for you and you also need this other stuff. Again, it's the same with grace. The Roman Catholic Church believes we are saved by God's grace, that God's favor comes to us unmerited through Jesus. But then it adds on to grace. See, what the Reformers argued, the key to it was that word sola, alone. It is Scripture alone. It is Christ alone. And it is grace alone alone. Because it's not in the official doctrine of the Catholic Church. See, the Catechism goes on to say this later on. Reading sacred scripture, praying the liturgy of the hours, or praying the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. Every sincere act of worship or devotion revives the spirit of conversion and repentance within us and contributes to the forgiveness of our sins. So don't don't miss that. Every sincere act of worship or devotion contributes to the forgiveness of our sins. So they believe in grace. We've got to be very careful. We don't misrepresent the, the doctrine of the Catholic Church. They believe in grace. But they also believe that we contribute to our salvation by what we do as well. It's a both and rather than grace alone. In many ways... The Catholic idea of salvation is represented by this little note that you got when you came in. Everyone got one of these? It's pretty cool. Just give me a wave. Show me. Alrighty. So what you're holding in your hand at the moment is my way of trying to represent this, all right? This is 20 merits. So well done. You're not at zero, which is a good sign. Catholic Church believes that because we are dead in our sin, Ephesians 2, we need a measure of God's grace in order to be saved. And so they believe that God gives to us, and they believe it happens through infant baptism, but God gives to us an initial burst of grace. So that's what you're holding. You're holding your initial burst. I've given you 20 merits because I'm feeling generous this morning. So God gives you grace, and that is the beginning of your salvation journey. But it's not the end, because you need a hundred merits 
to get into heaven. So God has given you in his grace the beginning of what you need. But you now need to work. And so every time you pray in our Father, every time you give to the poor, every time you attend Mass and take communion, you will be given more merit. And the way the merits worked, a couple of theologians that I was reading this week said, in the Catholic system, grace is, is kind of like Red Bull. It gives you the energy to keep going. So God gives you the Red Bull you need to really get going to journey with him in relationship. But then you now earn more merit by what you do, by doing good acts, by being kind, by being generous, by taking communion, whatever it is, you earn more merits. And as you earn more merits, God gives you more grace. So it's like you get another can of Red Bull and that energizes you more to keep going. Get it? And so slowly, you will accumulate, hopefully, the 100 merits you need by the time you die. Now, if you are born and you're given grace by God and you go, nah, and you just do whatever, then you're going to have zero merits and you're going to go to hell. All right? If you're a saint, and I don't mean most of you, quite frankly, I mean the really good saints, you know? They were so meritorious they got more than their hundred. So they used their hundred to get into heaven, and then the rest of their merits got stored in a bank that the Pope can then use to distribute to the rest of us needy people. Because the reality is, most of you guys aren't going to have a hundred. Honestly. You're going to end up with, you know, 50, 63. A couple of you at the back are going to have about 21. And that's why there's purgatory. Because you need 100 merits to get into heaven, but if you die on 75, you have to go to purgatory to be purified or for someone else to buy you an indulgence to get you up to the 100 to get into heaven. You'll get there, but it may take some of you a jolly long while. That's how it works. See, the problem is, though, you earn merit by doing all the good things you're meant to do. And God's great, you're given more grace from God that then infuses that and energizes that more and more. But you also get demerits. Some of you know what demerits are, right? You know, in the transport system of New Zealand. Demerit points are a very familiar concept. And that's how the system works. So you can be doing fine and getting some merits from the different things you're doing, but you can also be losing merits as you go as well. When Luther was a monk, he was taught the theology of the church. And the way, about a century before he came along, it was crystallized by this guy, a guy called Gabriel Beale. And he kind of summed up all of this teaching with this phrase, God will not deny his grace to the one who does what is in him or does what is best. In other words, God will give grace to the person who tries their best. God's given you grace anyway to start off. And then if you do your best, God will continue to give you more grace as you go along. This is the most lived out system of theology in our world today. Not only by the Catholic Church, it's by every other religion of the world and a fair number of Christians. In fact, this has become a mantra in our world. It's been rephrased this way. God helps those who help themselves is the medieval teaching of Gabriel Beale. 
and it is an anti-grace. Because the message of grace is not that God helps those who help themselves. The message of grace is God helps those who are helpless and can't do anything to help themselves. That's the doctrine of grace. Not that. This doctrine is God will start you out and then you need to carry on and God will give you the Red Bull drinks you need to keep going and hopefully you'll get close to the 100 when you die. The great difficulty of that, of course, is what happens with all those demerits. Later on in the Catechism, Christ instituted, instituted the sacrament of penance. For all sinful members of his church, above all for those who since baptism have fallen into grave sin and have thus lost their baptismal grace and wounded ecclesial communion, wounded the communion of the church, church fellowship. Penance offers a new possibility to convert and to recover the grace of justification after the shipwreck, which is the loss of grace. So you can stuff up so badly, you even lose the 20 you got at the start. And the system goes up and the system goes down, and you can merit, but you can also demerit. And God will give you the grace as you try your best, but if you're not trying your best, you don't get further grace. And so then the question has to become, doesn't it? How do you know if you've done enough? Where are you? Like, where's the fuel gauge to let you know where your merit standing is at the moment? I mean, if this is the system you're operating in, what's your number today? Have you had a good week with God or have you had a bit of a lousy week? Have you read your Bible this week? Did you go to community group? There's at least 10 merits for going to community group. Did you go or did you skip it? Because you're tired, it's the end of the year. Were you kind to your workmates this week? To your spouse this week? To your kids this week? To your dog? Were you unkind? Did you fly off the handle? Did you get angry about something? Did you abuse me as I drove past and cut you off by accident? Sorry. I'll get a demerit for that too. See, the problem is, if this is the system of salvation, how on earth do you know where you're up to? How, do you, how on earth do you know where you stand? It's so shaky. It's so demoralizing. Luther, as he would look back on the way he lived under this system, he wrote these words, if I lived and worked to all eternity, my conscience would never reach comfortable certainty as to how much it must do to satisfy God. Whatever work I had done, there would still be a nagging doubt as to whether it pleased God or whether he required something more. And that was Luther's story. Until he discovered this jewel called the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the good news of grace, he constantly fretted about whether or not he'd done enough, earned enough, confessed enough, prayed enough, done enough to satisfy God. But grace is not a helping hand. Grace is not... 20 merits, and then you work, and, and, and God will give you more grace along the way as you merit that as you do your best. That isn't grace. Grace is undeserved love. Grace isn't a thing that you're given like Red Bull. Grace is a status, a relationship that doesn't alter because it doesn't depend on whether you've deserved it or not. 
depends on Jesus. See, that isn't grace. That's grace. Can you read that at the back? It's a hundred merits. That's the gospel. When you come to faith in Jesus, you're given your full hundy right up front. You can't lose demerits. You don't add to perfection. Any good work that you and I now do is a response of thanks to that. And anything bad that we have done doesn't reduce this because it's covered by the death of Jesus on our behalf. That's what grace looks like. It's the merit that you and I need to be fully loved and accepted by God forever and ever and ever on the basis of Jesus. Luther wrote, the law says do this, but it's never done. Grace says believe in this, and everything's already done. That's the gospel. That's why Paul will write in Romans 8, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's not about whether or not you're earning enough merits and how you're going at the moment. It's simply accepting what Jesus has done and this incredible gift that you now rest in, the merits and love of God. It's not only the Catholic Church that gets this wrong. It's not only every other religious system in the world, whether it's the Eightfold Path of of Hinduism or the the Five Pillars of, of Islam. Every religion of the world adds works on because we want to feel like we merit. In fact, Luther would say, our default setting in our heart is works righteousness. In other words, when we forget the gospel that God has given us all we need in Jesus. Our default mechanism is to keep going back to works. No, this is it. Grace is undeserved favor, which we will never earn. Last week I mentioned that I'd been on a retreat uh, a couple of weeks ago, about 20 senior pastors from the network of churches we're part of. Just went on a retreat. It wasn't talking about ministry and how to lead churches better. It was actually a spiritual retreat for our own souls, just to spend time with God and each other. And Roland, who comes to this church, led some of that, and so did Charles Hewlett, who has just finished as the principal of Cary Baptist College. In Charles' last session, he was talking about not having to earn God's favor or acceptance or love, And he was reminding us as senior pastors, it's not what we do. Our ministries don't make us more loved. The position we hold in the church doesn't make us more accepted. We're just loved in Jesus, regardless of what we do. He gave us a little assignment at the end of that. This is the booklet that I was given from there. And he just wrote, think about how much you were loved by God. Complete the following phrase to reflect who you are in Christ. Try and make it a a favorite truth of yours. 
And then he just simply written, I am, and then it was four lines of dots for me to fill in. About how I'm loved by God, simply by grace. Doesn't depend on what I do. It's undeserved favor. This is what I wrote. I am Brad. I am deeply loved, completely forgiven, and fully accepted in Jesus. Because he's not ashamed to call me his little brother. See, that's grace. I am deeply loved, completely forgiven, and fully accepted. Not because I'm a pastor, not because I might have had a good week or a bad week, but because I'm in Jesus. I'm united with him. I've made the team on his merit. And that means he's not ashamed to call me his little brother. That phrase is from a passage in Hebrews 2 that has gripped me this year. Both the one who makes people holy, which is Jesus, and those who are made holy, which is you and I, we're of the same family. He's brought us in. He's our big brother. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him, you have his merit and his perfection. Grace has given you everything you need. Doesn't depend on your performance. Doesn't depend on whether you feel like you've earned it. Doesn't matter if you feel deeply ashamed by things you've done. He isn't ashamed by you because He's given you His perfect righteousness. And you are fully accepted and deeply loved and completely forgiven as well. Because that's grace. That's what the reformers recovered. That is the good news of Jesus. We are saved by grace alone, accepted through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus this morning, can I just simply invite you to recognize that you are dead in your sin and rebellion against God, and he doesn't want you to try and figure it out or make your life better or change he just wants you to come to him. Admit your brokenness, bring him your sin, and choose to trust in him. Because he lived the perfect life, he died on the cross for our sins, he rose again from the dead. And he offers you a relationship forever. You put your faith in him, and you're given everything you need by grace as a free gift. You're a Christian today you've already trusted in him you have to keep preaching the gospel to yourself you haven't been given enough to get started it doesn't depend on whether you've had a good week he doesn't relate to you based on whether you measure up whether you've done the right things he has given you everything you need as a gift live in it enjoy it Revel in his grace 
And then be the masterpiece you've been made to be. And go do the good works that he has prepared uniquely for you to do. Not to earn any more, that's all done. Simply to say thank you for what he's done. I'm going to invite the band to come up and they're going to lead us in just some worship response time. And as part of that, we're going to take communion together. We've got the communion elements on the two tables here on either side of of the room. What I'm going to invite you to do is, in the next couple of songs that are really focused on his grace, I'm going to invite you in your own time when you're ready just to come forward and to take the the bread and the juice and, and to take it in your own time. But I want you to do something else on your way today. I want to invite you to grab your 20 merits. 20 merits that that represents not just Catholic theology that I think is wrong, but this tendency in all of our hearts to want to merit and work for God. I want to invite you to bring your 20 merits up. So I want to invite you to come up the center aisle. And I want to invite you to bring your 20 merits with you. And there's a bowl at the foot of the cross. I want to invite you to put this down, to lay it down as a symbolic way of showing I don't want to live this up and down yo-yo life anymore with God. I'm laying that down. And then on the little coffee tables on either side of the cross, there are a stack load of these. You only need one. (laughs) We've got a second service yet. I want you to invite you, if you would like to, to take a hundred merits away. Stick it on your fridge. Put it in your Bible. Stick it in your mirror in the bathroom. Whatever you want to do, take this away. As a fresh reminder, I am saved by grace and by grace alone because of what Jesus has done for me. So get rid of your 20, take a hundred, and then as you take his merit... Come to the table and remember him. Lord Jesus, we want to bow before you today and thank you that we are saved totally by grace. We are loved by grace. We are forgiven by grace. We are accepted by grace. We are adopted as your precious daughter or your much-loved son by grace. And the whole definition of grace means we have never earned it. We can't repay it. We cannot justify ourselves. There's nothing we can do. You've done it all. Help us to preach this good news to ourselves every day. To remind ourselves that in Jesus it's finished. Help us to revel in this grace, to enjoy this grace to live amazing lives that are simply a response of thank you to your grace. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name.